The following audio is from Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to make and mature disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. Man, what a time of worship, amen? If that don't get you fired up, I don't know what will. All right, so this morning we're going to start off in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 is where we're going to start this morning. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit, so get your Bible ready to flip some pages. So I want to start off this morning with a moment of transparency, okay? I want to be honest with you about something. This week I wrestled significantly on what to preach about this morning. I'm honest with you. I, uh, I really struggled with kind of pinpointing where I wanted to be. And, and there's a couple of reasons why. One, the call that God's placed on my life is to preach the gospel, not to promote myself. And so it's a little weird for me this morning to have to kind of present a sermon in view of a call. That's kind of a, a weird thing for me to wrap my head around. Um, And number two, our circumstances this morning are a little bit unique. Typically, a pastor comes in in view of a call to preach a sermon so that you get to know him a little better, so that you get to hear how he preaches and decide, is that what you want to listen to for the rest of forever for 30 minutes every Sunday? Or if we're honest, let's be honest, 45 minutes every Sunday, right? So, you know, it was kind of weird because that's not really our... Our situation here, right? I've been preaching for six months every other Sunday, trading off with Julian, and so you know how I preach. And for most of you in this room, you saw me run around this church as a little kid doing stupid stuff. So you know me, right? Like you know my background. Most of you now I know there's people in here that that you've you've recently met me, but but it's, this isn't really one of those like get to know you times, right? And so I wrestled with what does this look like because you, you go you know, trying to figure out, I, I talked to a lot of friends, but most of my friends who have done this before are, are in churches that they didn't know them, and so that's what they were doing. They were sharing who they were, they were sharing their heart, uh, but like I said, you guys have heard that for the past six months, and so after a lot of prayer, a lot of counsel from some really trusted ministry friends, uh, I decided the best thing for me to do is to share with you, first of all, the story of how I even got to this moment. What led me to even hand my resume to the pastoral search committee. And then two, um, kind of just share what I see for Fellowship's future. And if I'm the pastor of Fellowship Baptist Church, what, what is it that I see for the next 10, 20, 30 years for Fellowship? And so that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. But before we do, if it's okay with you, I'd like to open us up again in another word of prayer and just ask God to guide me as we walk through this text this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the fact that you turn graves into gardens. For, for the fact that, that you can bring life out of death. So God, I pray that, that our focus in life as a church would be one that lives on mission to see that happen in people's lives. God, that our focus would be sharing this good news that we've received and that's radically changed our life, that our life would be about presenting that to others. And that we wouldn't do that out of a sense of duty, we wouldn't do that out of, a, out of the sense of responsibility because that's what you've told us we have to do, so we have to follow this list of commands, but that we would do it out of a sense of genuine love for you because of what you've done for us, because you loved us first, God, that we would in turn genuinely love you and that would lead us to obedience, God. God, I pray that you would be with me this morning as I present this sermon from your word. God, I pray that you would guide my thoughts, guide my words, and that you would be glorified this morning. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so a little bit about me for those of you who don't know. Uh, I grew up in church, been doing church since I was a very small baby, right? From the first point that my parents uh, were able to bring me, they started bringing us to church. And our uh, family was 
always centered around going to church and being faithful to church and serving. My parents have always served in church. And so I was blessed with that upbringing, right? That's, that is a huge blessing to receive as, as, as a person that, that your parents are faithful and they show you and train you in the ways of faithfulness to God. And so uh, very thankful for that. And, and really because of that, um, I came to know Christ at a very young age. Grew up in children's church and, uh, and received Christ at a very young age and, uh, and then grew up through a student ministry here at Fellowship that was amazing. Many people's lives were impacted by the student ministry here at Fellowship. Uh, many of the people in this room today are here because that student ministry impacted their life. And, uh, and it impacted my life in, in, in a huge way uh, in that when I was 16 at Camp Tekula, uh, I walked down uh, as a guy was preaching and surrendered my life to full-time ministry. At 16 years old, I recognized that God was placing this call in my life to proclaim his gospel through preaching. And so I walked down that aisle and I told uh, my youth pastor at the time that, that I wanted to surrender my life to Jesus in full-time ministry. And so I did that uh, along with several other friends. And over the years, God has re-solidified that call in my life and that he's constantly, evident, it's evident that he's guiding and directing me along the way. Um, to be honest with you, I was 16 as, as I approached graduating high school. There's always this like really intense, overwhelming thought process that goes into graduating high school for, for someone who's 18 and, and about to enter the world on what am I going to do with the rest of my life, right? That's an overwhelming thought. Like what, what, I have to make this decision right now. I have to figure it out right now. And it, feel, it feels that way, even though that's not true. It feels that you have to make that decision right then and you got to figure it out. And so uh, weighing that, I started really kind of questioning, is this what I'm supposed to do? And so uh, I had done a, a, a class in high school called computer maintenance and uh, was working with a guy a little bit on the side doing some uh, like telecommunications type stuff and thought I could make some good money doing this and make a living and I could do ministry on the side, right? This will be my backup plan, right? Everybody thinks they got to have a backup plan. And so, so I really started college doing that and just knew that that wasn't what God wanted for me. I just felt really overwhelmed. And, um, and then I, Be Beck and I got married, and, uh, and she actually legitimately called me out on it one day. She was like, look, I walked down that aisle and surrendered my life to ministry too, and uh, I married you on the basis of the fact that you felt like you were called to do ministry, and so I'm not here to play. Like, we're, this is what we're called to do. And I was like, you know, you're right. Let's, let's do it. So we had decided that we were going to go to Baptist Bible College and, and stay in the married dorms and, and get our education. And uh, that was right about the time that Hurricane Rita came in 2005 and, uh, and kind of just messed everything up and you know all, all the stuff that went along with that. Well, while we were, we were evacuated at Camp Sekula, cutting down trees and moving stuff, I was offered the job to be the student pastor here at Fellowship at that point. I was already kind of working here a little bit, doing some tech stuff and cleaning the buildings. And uh, I was offered that job to stay and do school online, which I was all about, right? So it gave me my first opportunity to be a student pastor full-time. And so I was here for five years and loved every second of it. As, as a student pastor, um, I loved... Uh, working here at my home church and, and doing that. Uh, but then God, for various reasons, saw fit to call me um, to Calvary Baptist Church in Beaumont. And so I served there for a year at their Beaumont campus, and then uh, they decided to really ramp up their Lumberton campus and asked me to go start a student ministry at their Lumberton campus, to which I was like, let's go. Because that was a challenge. I was excited about a challenge of starting from scratch. When I got there, I realized I shouldn't have been so excited because that's a lot of hard work. And, uh, and so we got to get there, and uh, literally there were Sundays when I would have zero kids show up to student ministry. What we would do is we didn't have a student ministry facility in the building, so we would have to bring a bus, a 15-passenger bus, and then bus kids to this office complex down the road, and we would have Sunday school there, and then we would bus them back. And then on Sunday nights, we were able to use this little cafe area for our uh, student worship service. And so we did that for a little bit, and then things started really growing. We ended up moving our, to another actual church facility, and then we had a student ministry designated area, and things really started to blow up. And, uh, and in that moment, I really started to kind of feel God 
tugging my heart towards other things than just student ministry. And so I had the opportunity to start working with uh, adults in their, um, in their Bible study classes. I, I became uh, over youth, but also over all of the education. So I managed uh, all of our adult Bible study classes, which we had like 10, 12, something like that, Bible study classes. Um, and then we also had, uh, I managed all the children's ministries and youth ministries and, and all that. So uh, it gave me an opportunity to kind of look at other aspects of ministry and, and have that experience, which was really good. And, uh, and so then uh, I was really enjoying it. Things were going good. The student ministry was growing. At that point, uh, we were running like a hundred and something on Wednesday nights and, and things were going really good. But then I started feeling like God had something different. And uh, I didn't know what that was, uh, but then I saw an opportunity to come back home. And uh, man, I was incredibly excited. I didn't think that it was uh, going to be a real possibility for it to work out, but, but God orchestrated it and worked it out. And uh, so 2017, we came back home and uh, have been working with students ever since. And then uh, back in February, we started doing parking lot church and uh, Julie and I started taking turns preaching every week, and over the past six months, I've really felt God stirring my heart for this, preaching and, and leading and guiding and directing and, and, and ultimately being in that senior pastor role. And so when the opportunity came up, I put my resume in. And so um, I, I really wanted to... Uh, to share with you what led me to that thought process. And it was, it was ultimately the fact that God changed my heart and my focus and my vision from student ministry to the senior pastor role within a six months man. And, uh, and I, you know, I really considered and prayed and asked God, what, what does God want? Because I don't want to do this if the God's not in it, because there's no, there's no win in that, right? There's no, blessing in that. I want God's best for fellowship. I want God's best for my life. I want, I want his will, his kingdom come, his will be done in my life and in the life of fellowship. And so, um, you know, as I've been thinking about what it means to be a pastor, what does that mean to me? What is, what is the role of a senior pastor? Um, you know, aside from preaching, obviously that's a mega part of the job. Preaching clearly preaching the gospel, sticking, sticking to this and not deviating from this is, is imperative. I get that. Um, aside from caring for people, I get that that's a major part of the role too, right? You have to earn the right to shepherd. You have to love people and be there for people when things happen in their lives and, and, uh, and be available. Uh, aside from administrating, which that is something that I'm very comfortable with. Um, you know, for me, administrating is using our resources to best glorify God and build his kingdom, not our kingdom, but his kingdom. And doing that with transparency and accountability. I think it's incredibly important for a pastor to have people in his life that are willing to say, you're an idiot. Stop doing that, right? I think that's, a, if you don't have that, man, that's, that's a dangerous place to be. Um, I learned that from working with Nathan Cawthon in Beaumont. Um, Nathan is very much a like, go-getter, strong personality, but he recognizes in himself that, that, that if left to his own efforts, he could just run over everybody and, and get really focused on vision and not really focus on all the other details. And so he's got a guy in his life that's the executive pastor who is, to I've seen them like, get into it heavily and, and, and there's always love and respect for one another. And so he's that guy that keeps him on, on track. And I think that's incredibly important and an incredibly important part of the job. But for me, and what I want to talk about this morning is that the primary function of a pastor, in my mind, is to lead and shepherd a local body of believers toward a common purpose and mission. To me, that's, that's the role of a pastor is to say, all right, all of us together, let's go this way, Right? That's, that's my view of, of, of the pastor's role, the, the primary function of the pastor. Um, I, I don't know if you guys realize this, but Julian plays golf a lot. Some of you may have heard him talk about it before. Not only does he play golf a lot, but he's actually really good. Like, he scores in the 70s, which is really good if you don't know about golf. 
and, and not like cheating, like kicking the ball down the thing, like, you know, foot wedge. No, he like legitimately scores a 70. He's really good. And, and, and I, on the other hand, am absolutely terrible. And, and I hate playing because I'm absolutely, it just frustrates me because I'm not good. I, uh, in college, you have to take a, uh, some kind of athletic course, you know, like PE or whatever. And uh, walking online was all taken up. So I took, uh, <laughs> that's actually a real class. I took golf and, uh, and still was absolutely terrible. Uh, and, and so what, what the instructor used to get on to me about all the time was I'm aiming, but for whatever reason, I, I don't know why, like I turn my body all weird like that. And I don't know why I do that. And he would always say, look at your feet. Wherever your feet are going, that's where you're aiming, right? And he was, he was always like really like mean to me about not aiming right. And uh, it hurt my feelings, but I'm over it now. Um, but lining up your body and aiming is really important in golf, right? Especially when you have all the trees and you're trying to aim towards a certain point. And where you aim yourself is where the ball is supposed to go. Uh, last year, Carter got a gun from his uh, grandfather. Uh, it was an inheritance type deal. He got this gun and uh, he wanted to go shoot it. So we drove up to Camp Tukula. For those of you who've been in men's retreat, you know where we shoot. I went up there uh, after Christmas and we went to go shoot his gun. And so I hand it to him. I'm trying to explain to him, all right, here's what you do. You know, you aim and, and I hand him the gun. And he turns and faces, there's this big berm hill thing. He turns and faces it and holds the gun like this and just boom. I was like, no, 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 no. Right, you gotta aim, you gotta, you gotta put it on your shoulder. You gotta look down the sights. You gotta make sure that you're aiming at something. Otherwise you're just gonna shoot up in the space and kill somebody. Thank goodness we were in Camp Tequila where nobody's in the woods during the off season. Uh, those of you who've been up there, you know people are in the woods in off season, it's hunting season. We never heard anybody die, so I think we're okay. Um, but, you know, aiming is incredibly important when you're shooting guns, when you're golfing. And I think for us as a body of believers, it's incredibly important for us to aim ourselves at something. Right? If we're not aiming ourselves at something, then we're just going through the motions and doing Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and there's no power in that. Right? Because God has given us a direction. He's given us something to aim ourselves at. And so I think that the primary function of the pastor is to say, hey, let's go as a body of believers. Let's work towards, let's aim ourselves at something that has power in it. Because I want to see God use fellowship in a miraculous way, and I know he can if we aim ourselves at something. And so this morning, what are we aiming ourselves at? That's what I want to talk about this morning, is what are we aiming ourselves at as a body of believers? And number one, what I think that we should be aiming ourselves at, the very first thing, is the great commandment that we see in Matthew 22. Here's what it says in verse 34. It says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. So let me give you some context here of what's going on. First of all, if you look before that in chapter 22, it's like different people trying to test Jesus. They're trying to bring him questions that will trip him up, really difficult questions for the time, and, and he's just one after the other, just silencing them with his response. And so here's a time when the Pharisees, they hear that he's already silenced the Sadducees in one of their questions. They come together, one of them who's supposedly an expert in the law, someone who would have been higher above the rest, he says, uh, or he formulates this question, and he goes to, to, to Jesus and he says, which command of the law is the greatest? Now this is important for us to understand some context about because what's going on here is all of these religious leaders at the time were obsessed with the law. Obsessed, like, like they studied it over and over and over again. They would take the laws and say, okay, there's 613 laws. And so they would make their list and they would have a list of the ones that are, that are really important, the ones that are imperative, and then the ones that aren't so important. And they, they would write out their little list. And each one of them would have had their own list because that's not explicit in scripture. And so they would say, this is the important law. And these are the ones that are kind of, you can fudge a little bit on. These are the ones that are less important. And, and each one of them, like I said, would have a different list. And so they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, all right, you're the Messiah. Show us your list. You obviously care about the rules. Show us the list. And he says to them, listen, it's not about a list. 
It's not about checking the system. It's all about loving God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. That is what this is all about. And we are guilty of the same today. We want to know, where, where can I fudge a little on what God's Bible, what his word says? What, where, where can I obey and what can I fudge a little on? And, and, and God's just saying, look, just love me. Just love me because if he has your heart, if, he, if, if you genuinely love him, then the obedience will follow. There's a um, thing that I used to do that was really stupid. Again, we're, we're being transparent this morning, right? This is when I was a teenager, and uh, I, I really don't like wearing my seatbelt. I know you should. I know it's important, and I do when people tell me to, um, or when there's a cop driving by. Real quick story, really funny. Brother Hayes told me one time, the way that you get out of a ticket for a seatbelt is when you drive by a cop and you realize, oh, I forgot to put it on. You start picking your nose. And then he's grossed out by you, the fact that you're picking your nose, and he doesn't ever know so you don't have your seatbelt on. <laughs> Brother Hayes legitimately told me that. That's just, a, just an aside for you. Um, but what I would do is, instead of putting my seatbelt on, I would just put it over my shoulder. So they, they would see that it's there. They wouldn't know that it wasn't really buckled. How stupid is that, right? Like, and, and so, public perception, I'm good, Right? The cop drives by, he sees the little strap there, he thinks we're good, drive on, right? Anybody else who drives by thinks, oh, that guy's a good, smart guy, he wears a seatbelt. Nobody knows really, I'm not really wearing my seatbelt, right? I've, I've met public perception, but I've not really fulfilled the law, right? And that's where many believers, and that's where these people were at, they were incredibly concerned about public perception, they wanted publicly for people to admire them, one, but two, to never think that they were these morally bankrupt people. They wanted people to respect them and think that they were good followers of Yahweh. But yet, they weren't really following the law. Their hearts were cold and distant towards God, and Jesus recognized this, and he says, listen, it's not about the list. Stop worrying about the list. Throw the list away. Just love God. Just love God. Because if you genuinely love God, you're going to follow in obedience. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, David's up for a pretty big task, and nobody believes that he can accomplish it as the next king of Israel. So Samuel's task, the prophet Samuel's task with identifying who the next king is going to be. And so verse 7 of 1 Samuel chapter 16 says, but the Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his statue because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Listen, the problem with trying to figure out the list, the good and the bad, and, and worrying about public perception and prestige God can see straight through into your heart. God can see straight through into your heart of who you are as a person. And so when we recognize that reality, we recognize that we are broken sinners before God. There's no amount of checkbox system that we can do to be righteous before a holy and a perfect God who can see our motive. So God says, listen, I'm not after your behavior, I'm after your heart because your behavior will follow. David obviously remembered that experience because he refers to it again in Psalms 51.10 after he has this major moral failure with Bathsheba. His repentant prayer after he gets caught is God created me a clean heart and re renew a steadfast spirit within me. David understood that his problem wasn't so much the behavior, it was the fact that he allowed his heart to grow cold and distant towards God. Listen, this morning, it's incredibly important that we keep our hearts and our minds and our souls focused on a love for God. That we don't get wrapped up in public perception and thinking, are people going to think that we're good people? Because that doesn't matter. Do we love God? That's what matters. The Pharisees were all about manipulating the law for their own gain. 
They were all about public perception and prestige. prestige. They didn't love God. They only loved themselves. Jesus says, you want to know what's the most important in all the law? Genuinely love God. Because that kind of love will produce surrender. So what does that look like for fellowship? What does that look like for us today? It, it, It looks like we must always ensure that everything we do and everything that we are is centered around a love for God. We don't exist for public opinion and prestige. That's not what we're here for. We're not here so that people think, oh man, look at those people over at fellowship. Those are really good people. No, we exist to love God, to genuinely love God. And that is our motive in everything that we do is we love God. But there's more to the great commandment than just loving God, right? He goes on, he says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, the prophets depend on these two commands. So who is your neighbor? That's the question that's been asked in scripture and Jesus answers that. Uh, You know, Julie and I are really good friends, right? So for Julian, it's, it's really good for me to think of his, really easy for me to think of him as my neighbor, right? He's easy to love. He doesn't, he, he, he doesn't, uh, he, he's agreeable. He's responsible. He rarely needs help except for when he gets his mud stuck, his truck stuck in mud and vider and I got to go pull him out. But other than that, he's pretty like got it together. And, and so it's easy for me to, to love Julian because it doesn't really cost a whole lot from, from me to love Julian, right? But what if the person is not easy to love? What if the person's not agreeable? What if they're not responsible? What if they need a ton of attention and help? Are those people our neighbor too? I think Jesus answers that question when he, when he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, right? He, he gives this story because this, this religious leader again comes to him and says, who is my neighbor? Right? You say that the greatest command is, is to love God and love others, love your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? And he says that he's trying to justify himself. So Jesus gives a story about this Jewish guy who gets attacked on the, on, on the road. He's left there for dead. And this priest and this Levite, they pass by and they do nothing. And then this Samaritan walks by and he takes care of him. Right? And, and, and obviously, many of us who have been, grown up in church, we understand what that means, that there's this Samaritan person and there's this Jewish guy, and those two people do not get along. They're not friends, right? They're not, they're not easily connected. There's, there's this huge racial divide between the two. They don't like each other at all. And Jesus is trying to make the point that your neighbor is not just the person that's easy to love. It's the person who you don't really like that much. And so when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's not just talking about the people that look like you. He's not talking about the people that act like you. He's not talking about the people who do the same things that you think or believe the way that you think or have the same political affiliation that you do. He's talking about all people across all nations. That's your neighbor. And you love that person as yourself. We have no problem loving ourselves, do we? One of the things that's really interesting about this story of the Good Samaritan is this guy goes above and beyond the illogical amount of love, right? He, he, he picks him up, he bandages his wounds, he brings him to this inn. Here's some extra money. If you need more, I'll come back and pay his debt. That is a radical type of love. It's a radical, selfless type of love. Listen, think about it. If there was someone in your life that you loved and you cared about who was doing that for someone else, especially someone who is radically different than you and and doesn't agree with you and doesn't love you, you probably would advise them, hey, man, you're kind of going above them. You're going a little overboard here, right? You got to take care of yourself a little bit. Like you're giving them all your money. I mean, what are you going to do? Right? We, would, we would probably advise someone against that level of love. But what Jesus is saying is, listen, this is what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the command. 
We have no problem caring for ourselves. We, we have no issue making sure that we're fed. We have no issue making sure that we're clothed. We have no issue making sure that our kids are comfortable and, and have what they need. We are really good at caring for ourselves. But Jesus says, listen, the greatest command is to love me, which leads to a love for others. And what that looks like is that you love them as yourself. That when you see someone that's hungry, you feed them. When you see someone that needs clothes, you clothe them. You fulfill other people's needs because you genuinely care about people, not just yourself. That's the call. That's the great commandment. Love God, which leads to a genuine love for other people. We would never just say to ourselves, like in James 2, go in peace, stay warm, and be fed. We would make sure that we are warm and that we are fed. That's because there's a difference between empathy and real love. You can drive by someone who is in need and feel sorry for them. James says, good for you. Because there's a big difference between just feeling sorry for someone and actually doing something. Love is action. And if we genuinely love God, we will trust and obey. And if we genuinely love our neighbor, we will care for them as we would care for ourselves. Listen, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's action. That's action. That leads to something, doing something. How do we demonstrate our love to other people? What have we done to demonstrate our love for you? Now, I'm not talking about just this emotional feeling when you see someone and you're sad for them. I'm talking about what have you done for them? What have you sacrificed so what does this look like for fellowship? We must be a church that is known for our love for one another and our community. It's gotta be who we are. If we're gonna be a great commandment type church, yeah, we gotta love God, but we also have to love others. John 13, 34, Jesus says, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And he says this, by this, Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus says, look, this is how people are going to know that you actually belong to me, that you follow me, that you're part of my followers, that you love one another. And what does loving one another mean? It's not just an, this emotional feeling of sorrow and empathy. It's action. It's doing something. When you see a need, you meet a need. That's what it means to love other people. When Brother Hayes passed away, there was a, uh, a post on Facebook that was made that I saw, and uh, it was a young guy who uh, had gone to Brother Hayes and said, Brother Hayes, he just got back from Bible college, and he said, Brother Hayes, what do you think about eternal, uh, or what do you think about predestination? What do you think about Romans, Romans 9, which anytime some young guy goes to Bible college and he learns that the first time, he's like the nerdiest person in the world and thinks he got to talk about it all the time, right? And Brother Hayes looked at him and said, Brother Hayes, obviously at this point, incredibly seasoned in ministry, looks at him and says, let me tell you about this story about a guy named Bob. Bob's lost his job. His wife's left him. His kids want nothing to do with him. Bob could care less about predestination. All Bob wants to know is that somebody loves him and cares about him. So I read that on Facebook and then a few days later went to Brother Hayes' funeral. Man, was it evident that that man lived by that principle? Because you look in the crowd and you see people from all walks of life, people who are affluent, who are there to remember the impact that they made, he made on their life, people who are living in poverty, who are there because he made an impact on their life. And listen, as I watched those people walk down the aisle past his casket, I said to myself in my heart, that's the legacy I want. That's the ministry that I want. That's what I want to be known for is that, that people know me by my love. And that's the kind of church that I want to be part of. 
a church that is known for their love for the community, known for their love for one another. That's the kind of ministry I want to be part of. So we aim ourselves at the great commandment, love God, love others. But then we also aim ourselves at the great commission because the great commission is, is, is this overflow of the reality of the great commandment being something that we really have given ourselves to, right? If you really love God, you really love others, you're going to live out the great commission. Matthew 28, 18, we all know it. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I think it's critical that we aim ourselves at loving God and loving others, but we've already determined that loving God means obedience to his commands, right? So what did Jesus tell us to do? He said, make disciples, right? That's the command. He said, make disciples. What, what does that mean? We've been talking about making disciples for six months straight now. Have you guys picked up on that? Like walking through Acts, it's week after week after week after week of talking about making disciples. That's what Julie and I have been talking about till we're blue in the face. And sometimes we joke about like, I feel like we say the same thing over and over and over and over again, but that's what's in God's word. And so that's what we're called to do is just to say exactly what's in there. And so we say it over and over and over and over again. But what does it mean? Why would, why would we spend so much time talking about it? Because this is the Christian life. This is what a Christian looks like. Again, it's not about being morally upright. It's about doing what Jesus told us to do, which is make disciples. And not out of a sense of, man, I have to do this because God says I have to do this, but because I genuinely love God and I want what he wants for my life. And he says for my life that he wants me to make disciples and build his kingdom. I get to be a part of that. That's the motive. This is the evidence of love God, love others. It's the fruition of it in your life. If you love God, if you love others, you will make disciples. So what is discipleship? What does that mean? What does that word mean? Listen, it's not programmatic. It's not something that we can say, all right, come to this class 25 times during the week and you're a disciple. Woo, awesome. Check, done. That's not it. Sometimes it's an incredibly painful long process. And here's what it is. It's you as a believer maturing in Christ to a point to where you're ready to go out and make another disciple. A real disciple makes disciples. That's what we do. And so discipleship can't be programmatic. It's, it's you investing in someone else on a level to where you're sacrificing yourself, your time, your money, your energy to be responsible for that person's spiritual well-being. You look at someone who's a baby Christian and say, I'm going to mentor you, I'm going to walk with you alongside of you to help train you and show you the way of what it means to live like Jesus. And then the ultimate goal is that you will be able to then go make disciples yourself and help them grow. If we're not doing that, we're not doing discipleship. We can meet and learn about the Bible all the way we want, we're not doing discipleship. Because discipleship is not learning, it's doing. It's just like that golf swing. We can try, we can be trying to aim at something, right? I'm trying to aim, but my feet are turned a little bit, and really I'm aiming that way, right? In my head, I think I'm aiming straight, but I'm actually aiming off. We do that all the time as a church, right? We get really focused on invite someone, grow the attendance, get the church to be growing and big and huge. We want this huge church where people are flowing into the doors. And that's not a bad thing. The bad thing is if that's what we're aiming ourselves at, we're missing the mark. We have to aim ourselves at making disciples and the byproduct of disciples being made will be a growing church. This is the mission of the church to go we understand, right, go is, is an action word. It means that you gotta go, you have to move, you have to be intentional. Listen, you're not gonna wake up tomorrow and just all of a sudden disciples are gonna be made because you didn't do anything. 
You have to right now, in this moment here, say, I'm gonna start making disciples and here's my plan to be able to start to do that. Who's the people in your mind that you know that you have relational credibility enough with to be able to share the gospel with? If you don't have any lost friends, you're missing the mark. How are you intentionally meeting lost people so that you can share the gospel? That is the call of the church. That is what we have to aim ourselves at. Go, action and intentionality. Make disciples. Who's he say make disciples of? All nations. We don't just look for people that look like us, people that act like us, people that we think would believe like us. We make disciples of all nations, of all people, people who think differently than us, people who act differently than us, people that look differently than us. And then we teach them and we mentor them which again, this is a sacrifice. It's gonna cost you some of, your, some of your weeknights. When you get home and you've been working all day and you're exhausted and you're like, I just don't, I just wanna go home and veg out watching Netflix and eating popcorn. That's not the call of the disciple. You lay your life down. Right? Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. I'm no longer my, my own. I don't belong to myself. It's Christ who lives in me. What does that mean? That means that you, you've laid it all down. It's not your life. It's his life. It's not your money. It's his money. It's not your time. It's his time. It's not your kids. It's his kids. It's not your possessions. It's his possessions. It's not your life. It's his life. If we've really surrendered to him, then we've said, Jesus, you can be in charge of my life and I'm gonna give myself to you because I genuinely love you. And then he says, King James, and lo, I am with you always, even into the end of the age. Right? So what does that mean? That as we're walking through this process, we're not relying on our own strength, we're relying on his power in us. Right? He's with us throughout the process. So how does this relate to fellowship? We have to aim ourselves at making disciples. We have to. That is the call. That is what the church was established for. Not to meet and be educated. Not to meet and be entertained. Not to meet and have social interactions. The church, in its essence, its mission is making disciples. Building God's kingdom. And so everything we do as a church is done with that as the end goal. If we give out links at a football game, we're doing that so that we can make disciples. When we pay for people's laundry at the laundromat, we do that with the end goal of making disciples. Everything has to be filtered through the question of will this bear the fruit of disciple making? If not, we don't do it. If so, then we give ourselves to it. Our children's ministry should be about making disciples. Our student ministry should be about making disciples. And our growth groups should be about making disciples. Everything that we do is aiming ourselves at making disciples disciples because that's the mission that Jesus gave his church. As we wrap this up, back in February, Julian and I met and we talked about what we thought we should be preaching through the transition. And so we preached a series called We Are Fellowship. Some of you guys remember that. What does that mean? We are fellowship. What does it mean to be fellowship? I, uh, I used to, back in the day, you, could, uh, you pastors could go to schools and pass out flyers and hang out with kids and all that. Now they kind of got some roles where you can't do that as easily. We, I would go to the lunches and pass out flyers. And uh, I'd go to every table, talk to kids, hand them a flyer and say, hey, come to our program tonight. And uh, I always got this every time. I go to that church and it'd be some kid like I've never seen before. <laughs> like, no, yeah, I don't think you come to our, maybe, maybe like Easter and Christmas, but that's it. I don't want for us to have the mentality of, oh, I'll go to that church. I want for us to have the mentality of, I am that church. I am 
fellowship. I own, I'm part of it. I'm, I'm taking ownership of its mission. I'm taking ownership of its future because I am fellowship. It's not just something that I do. It's, it's who I am as a person. What does it mean to be fellowship? It means we're part of something special. We're part of a family that's corporately decided to aim ourselves towards loving God, loving others, and making disciples. When we preached that series, we, we read in Acts chapter two, starting in verse 42, we, we preached from 42 to 47 for several weeks. And here's what it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's what I want. That's what I want. I came back to fellowship in 2017 because I genuinely believe God has huge plans for the future of fellowship. I really believe that. If we can aim ourselves at these two things, the great commandment, the great commission, we'll see the power of God like never before. Can you imagine how exciting it would have been to be part of that early church? They're meeting together, living in Christ-centered community, and daily, God's adding to their numbers those who are being saved. Can you imagine how exciting that must have been to be part of something that powerful? What if God used fellowship like that? What if God used fellowship to plant churches in areas most churches are retreating from? What if God used fellowship to send missionaries to hard to reach parts of the world? What if God used fellowship to train up young ministers of the gospel that took a great commandment, great commission focus to wherever God leads them? Think of the impact. Think of the impact. Think of the kingdom building that would take place. Do you see it? Do you see it this morning? Do you see that if we just live out what God wants for our life, if we just live on this mission, if we just aim ourselves at what he's calling us to aim ourselves at, that then the power of God moves in and takes over and we just get to live and rest in the peace of God knowing that he's moving in the hearts of people in our community and using us to do great and mighty things. Does that excite you? Is that something that that you want to see, something that you want to give yourself to. If we, as this local body of believers, aim ourselves at loving God, loving others, and making disciples, there is no limit to what God can do. These things can be realities. Listen, I'm not just trying to move up the ranks of ministry. I know there's a lot of guys out there that they're doing that. They come in and to them it's, a, it's this corporate ladder they gotta work their way up. I could care less about that. I genuinely want God's best for fellowship. I want his will above anything else. For the past several weeks, my prayer has been, your kingdom come your will be done. This morning, as I sat there before I walked up, that was my prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I want God's best for fellowship. But regardless of what happens today, our mission should be the same. Love God, love others, and make disciples. Would you please stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed.
the challenge this morning is simple. You can look in God's word and see what our, our call is as the church, as the Fellowship Baptist Church in Needleland, Texas. Our call is love God, love others, make disciples. And so the challenge this morning, the question this morning is, are you doing it? Are you living that? Have you abandoned all of the, the checkbox rules and, and the things that we think that we have to do to earn God's favor? And have you just genuinely given yourself to him because you love him? And has that led you to a genuine love for other people? Not just an emotional, oh, I feel sorry for those people or I, 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 I have this emotional response where I do, yeah, I have this feeling of love, but, but a, a, a love that leads to action. And, and has that led us to be disciples who make disciples? Are we making disciples? Where's the kingdom impact? So this morning, if you say, Daniel, I'm not living that out in my life right now. Listen, we can talk about it corporately to we're blue in the face, but if people aren't doing it individually, it's never going to happen. Are you individually living out the great commandment and the great commission? If the answer to that question is no, then I would challenge you to come down to these altars as Julian sings here in a moment with a heart of repentance and ask God to change your heart. Just like David. Don't go to God and say, God, I know I've been messing up and I need to change my behavior. Go to God and say, God, I don't have the heart that I need to live out what you've called me to do. Change my heart. As Julian sings, these altars are open to you. Thank you so much for listening today. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.